just tell me straight before I have to go? Oh, oh, I Hi, everybody. This is Chantel Lopez. Welcome to another Thinking Pilates podcast. This is episode 30. And today we are joined with someone who I consider a very dear friend um, and a, an exceptional colleague. Her name is Anna Hartman. Hi, Anna. Hi there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we have kind of an interesting history, and we're going to get into that just a little bit because it's um, very sweet and, and really fun, I think, just to um, to share how we got to know each other and how we first found out about each other. Um, but one of the reasons why I wanted to bring Anna on to the podcast is because she and I have been... Uh, having some really interesting conversations over the last few years. And Anna is often the person that I go to when I have um, really geeky, really technical questions about the body. And whether that's in a um, grotesquely long email or it's a quick uh, text message or it's over lunch when she's here in California, um, it's it's really been so super valuable to me, and we've talked about so much great stuff that I thought um, it would be good to share what what you know what we've been uh, jamming around. So, Anna, you are in Scottsdale, Arizona, and uh, you've been an athletic trainer, kind of at the foundation of your work for how many years now? Uh, I've been an athletic trainer for 14 years. Awesome. Um, yeah. And Anna and I actually met kind of circuitously with a friend, uh, Corey, oh, Martinez, here in Sacramento. Oh, I want to know. Yoga studio. Uh, and um, it, uh, how did how did it actually all happen, Anna? Like, how did how did we find out about um, each other? Well, yeah. So I met Corey while I was in Sacramento, uh, taking care of my mom, and um, found like just walked into Asha and knew it was like the place I needed to be. And then eventually met Corey and, um, became obsessed with her because she was the first (laughs) yoga teacher that I, um, had ever, uh, experienced yoga movement from through the sort of, I say more of like the Pilates eyes or like just movement science background. And, um, I had always known I wanted to do a yoga teacher training, but that was sort of my limitation was like, ah, I want to make sure it's somebody who really understands the body and movement. And so I got to know her and she kept on telling me, Oh, you need to meet my friend Chantil. You'll love her. You guys are like, you, like you guys are totally going to nerd out. And, um, so, and I was like, Oh, I've heard that name before from, you know, other people. So kind of like the Pilates world. And then we finally, I think the first time we connected was, um, was it the, it might have been teacher training uh, two years ago in Hawaii? I think that's the um, first which time. is funny. Oh, because she I know how it was because I felt like I already knew you, but yes, because she recommended your book to me. Yeah, and your your book ended up being like a huge tipping point for me to uh, leave the company that I was working for for eleven years and and start out on my own and doing yeah. my own thing. And so I was like so grateful for that book and, um, was like telling everybody regardless of whether they were a Pilates or movement practitioner or, you know, at all that they needed to do it. And so 
she we got connected that way first and kind of became friends over email and social media and then yeah, finally I'm, met in person two years ago almost to the day in no Hawaii. way and oh my gosh yeah. you're right it was October uh yeah, yeah I just remember having this really uh interesting experience which I think is not totally foreign to people these days which is you know we had uh we I think the first time we actually exchanged a direct communication was on Facebook, um, uh-huh. around like around the book. I, I don't really remember what it was. Something maybe Corey posted. Uh, yeah. and then just like instantly for me, like just instantly knowing that, you know, like we were going to be friends and how sweet it was already. And we had this kind of, uh, this kind of thing, you know, friendship happening via social media. Uh, and then, it, yeah. And then teacher training was coming up in Hawaii and I just remember the moment that Corey told me that you were going to be there. I was like, no way. I get to, <laughs> I get to finally meet her. That's crazy. So, uh, very, awesome. yeah, it was so cool. It was so cool. I also remember um, driving up to the farm uh, where we were hosting the teacher training. And you guys had already been there, right? Uh-huh. You had already been there yeah. for a week. And I walking down the driveway and um, – and then just the first time that we met was really just so sweet. And and yeah. then, you know, and then I think it was just like, it was just kind of all over from there. And, um, yeah. of course we had it. <laughs> we couldn't stop talking, That's even right. though it was, even though it was, we have silence. Yes. We were supposed <laughs> to be in silence. We, we were maybe not very good about that. Um, but it's been, you know, it's been such a pleasure to have somebody who's so thoughtful and so knowledgeable about the body to really turn to who kind of gets both perspectives. And I think that's something, um, unique that you bring to the work that you do and the, you know, the work that you're influencing, whether it's, you know, Pilates teachers, um, you know, or other athletic trainers or people in the yoga community, um, it's, it's just a, it's a real, real high quality thoughtfulness. And I, it's, I appreciate that about you so much. Um, and I feel like you live by something that I hold really dear, which is this idea of like not making a rule of things, just, being, yeah. you know, being very open and being very flexible and putting your knowledge to work in all kinds of different ways, never getting, you know, kind of pigeonholed into one approach um, or being totally married to an idea. And, um, I've just always really valued that about you. And it's, you know, it stands out in our conversations, which leads me to, um, you know, we have had some recent conversations about some areas, some high areas of interest for me, um, and things that I have been working on with my teachers through skillful teaching. And one of them has been verbal cueing and manual cueing. And we've had all kinds of discussions about this. Um, and I want to, I want to talk a bit about some of those things, um, because, uh, they're worth it. Um, but what I want (laughs) to do a little bit is also kind of, um, start at the end and work ourselves backwards a little bit, or maybe just, uh, preface this idea. The last time we were talking, um, we, we both, we both decided we should have recorded the conversation because it was like awesome, awesome, totally great, you know, exchange of ideas and questions and insights and all of this just really cool stuff. And of course we didn't record it. 
Um, but one of the things uh, in my notes was just about what you brought to the table, which is this idea of um, resilience and uh, positive or appropriate compensation in the body and how what happens a lot of times for us as teachers is that we get very, very attached to the idea of achieving perfect movement for our students without really understanding the implications of that. Um, and I think a lot of what we have talked about over the course of the last couple of years really all lends itself to that, that one overarching idea. So yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, that's where I'm hoping we'll go. I'm hoping that we're going to get there. Um, but, well, here's the thing. We can just start there. So just let's talk about this. Like, what, So what does this mean to you? Like, So you're working with high-level athletes primarily. Is that true? Yes, that is absolutely true. <laughs> and, and you are also a master-level Pilates teacher through Polestar. Yes, I did my Polestar comprehensive, like, I think I finished it in 2011. Mm -hmm. And and before that, I, um, I, I went to, I think I've been to every rehab summit, Pilates on tour, uh, that Balance Bodies put on down here in Phoenix since, since it started. And, and so my experience with Pilates really was that. And then through just taking classes on my own and, um, I, my first ever Pilates on tour, I was introduced to Elizabeth Larkham and it was again, like somebody else that I became obsessed with yeah. and really was like the first, like, oh my gosh, maybe people who are movement practitioners know something and have something to share and offer me and teach me. And so it was, you know, especially coming from a rehab and physical therapy world, sports medicine world, you kind of assume that because you have this license or this, you know, specialized degree that you know everything. Also, I'm sure because I was really young and so I thought I knew everything. <laughs> um, and I remember learning from Elizabeth and being like, oh my gosh, not only was I blown away, but I was like, I'm pretty sure she's spoken a completely different language. <laughs> and so I was like, I pretty much then followed her and became her shadow for, for however many years after and um, became friends with her. And so um, that was sort of my entry was Elizabeth Larkham style, contemporary Pilates. Mm -hmm. And then, and then um, went into the Polestar uh, uh, from there, wanting it to be sort of more from a rehab standpoint. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's it. Yeah. So that's my Pilates background. Yeah. And so what, what about this idea of creating, like, how does this, how does this make sense to you from where you're coming from and the work that you do in terms of not necessarily having the goal be perfect movement, but a, about really preparing the body for appropriate and resilient compensation? Like, what is that? All right. That's, um, it's sort of been like a long time developing my thoughts around that, you know, and I've come full circle in terms of, um, thinking, you know, the way to improve performance and make people be pain-free is to completely clean up their movement and make movement patterns perfect and move perfectly. And it was better to move slowly and perfectly than quickly without, um, without, um, good movement patterns. And, you know, and, and especially this era in, 
the physical therapy and sports medicine research really supports that. Mm -hmm. And, um, so it's easy to get roped into that way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but in the background always was the knowledge, especially with working with the um, professional athletes, like elite level athletes is we'd get these amazing athletes that came into the doors of our, our, our facility and they were really poor movers, but yet a lot of them didn't have a huge injury history and, and, and they were like performing at the peak. And so there, there was always that kind of like question in the back of my eye, my mind. And in terms of like, if we're saying that people's movement patterns need to be perfect in order for them to perform at a certain level and to feel healthy and, and be, you know, um, you know, have a good life and have a good performance, like, then why are these athletes, like, such poor movers? Like, it it wasn't, like, equaling it. Uh But, you know, in my head, I was like, well, you know, but we can make them better. Maybe they could even be more, like, they could, they're already amazing, they could be more amazing. And so let's just clean up their movement. And, And some of them did obviously have very good results but then other ones they you know they they didn't necessarily have the best results and and so it's always like you know I I, am a I'm constantly I'm a I'm a huge thinker and so I'm constantly like thinking like well why and like why does this work and why does this not work and are we really doing what we think we're doing by applying whatever exercise or modality and so um it was not until the last few years that I was introduced to both Philip Beach's work with his contract outfield uh, theory and mm-hmm. uh, Jean-Pierre Barral, um, who is the founder of the Barral Institute through his work with uh, of visceral manipulation and neural manipulation, which is more of an osteopathic uh, type perspective that I started to realize like, hmm, maybe this is the answer. Maybe Maybe, yeah, movement is important to a point, but the, the, the reason we have injury, the reason we um, get hurt or don't feel well is that we've actually lost the ability to compensate. And and that's what I've always known the athletes were really good at was better than any normal person I've ever trained or better than myself, their ability to have things like have all these stresses loaded upon them, um, their ability to compensate and keep going and keep going at a high level is so much greater than normal people. Mm. Um, that's really what sets them apart. And so when the, when the teachers at the Baral Institute shared that, that quote or that information from Jean-Pierre, it was like, Oh my gosh, that's it. You know, hit one of his quotes he uses, which may or may not be his, but it's some osteopaths in Europe is, you know, that that's what disease is, that it's not that, um, you know, compensation is not bad, but the, it's the ability to, when you lose the ability to compensate is when disease happens. Mm-hmm. And so that really was like, a, huh, okay, <laughs> this is a completely different perspective. And so that really, that really, with that and, and Philip's stuff, it was just really this huge change in, in, what I did to, to sort of take a lot of the thinking of moving out mm. and stop like almost paralyzing people from being able to move because they're worried something's going to hurt if they move wrong yeah. um, to making things like way more simple. Like yeah. it, we, we have a tendency to make things super complicated <laughs> and I don't really think it has to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, 
So it's interesting because, um, you know, Philip's work, you know, really roots back to the evolutionary development of human beings and looking at like how we, how we used to move, right. More animalistically, you know, as hunter gatherers and, um, you know, being able to, to get up and get down from the ground in a myriad of ways, um, that, that is not, you know, always like ergonomically beautiful, um, or, you know, or, or perfect. Um, and then it reminds me too about, um, do you, have you heard of, uh, I don't know if it's Edo portal or Ido portal. Yeah. Do you know that guy? Yeah. Yeah. So yep. one, one of the things that's so cool about him, I think one of the coolest things I've ever heard him say is that it's not about, you know, perfect posture. It's, it's really just about, you need to be able to be out of alignment, right? Being in alignment right. is easy, but you need to be able to be adaptable, morphable enough that you can be out of alignment and still be healthy and still function with ease and efficiency. And I think, Absolutely. you know, that's one of the things um, that I love so much just about kind of where you see a lot of practitioners going now. Um, you know, Philip's work has had a, a huge impact on that Um a specific way of thinking about movement and, and system health, right? Because it's not just about um, movement. It's not just about muscles, not just about fascia, but it's about the organs. It's about the neurology. It's about, you know, all of the pieces functioning well together. Um, and it's, it's just, it's, it's really as a Pilates professional, it's really uh, quite a relief to feel like, um, there's, there, there is potentially a lot more value in, um, you know, that sense of adaptability and, and being yeah. out of alignment and not feeling like it has to just, uh, be one way or be perfect all of the time, which of course I think that right. there is value. And I'm, I think that you would agree, uh, you know, in consistency and, and in like doing the work and doing the work well, like we don't want sloppy movement necessarily. Right. right? So, um, right. It still has to be awareness. Like in order to make any changes, you still have to be aware. And so I'm not saying just to go crazy, but I'm saying that perhaps it doesn't matter so much to be directing the muscles. Like perhaps when we're directing the muscles, we're actually not helping. We're actually hurting people's movement. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, talk about that more when we're directing the muscles, talk about that versus. Yeah. Um, there's so many things in my head I want to talk about. Um, (laughs) so, uh, the, um, well, uh, I'll talk about that, but just to throw it out there so I don't lose thought, maybe it's on your mind too, but I wanted to go back to like the, what, um, uh, Ido Portal's work and Philip's work and like why I think that they have brought so much to movement and how they relate to resiliency and sort of more of like the definition of resiliency. Yeah, but we can go back to that. Well, no, let's, let's go there now because I think that'll oh, finish okay. off the original thought and then we'll talk about what okay. it means to just train the muscles. Yeah, the muscles. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so, um, you know, kind of like you said in the beginning too, of like, you know, when you first talked to me, what you liked is I have this for whatever reason, I think, cause I am a thinker, everything I've ever learned and every person I've ever been around, um, or in every experience I've had in my own body, 
um, that has had a, a lot of injuries, I, I'm, I constantly am like assimilating all the information in my head and I'm constantly trying to, you know, cause I really, really believe like there's no new information out there. Everybody's really saying the same thing <laughs> just in different ways. And it's going to come back generation after generation. And the things that really work get filtered out. Right. And, um, and, if you li- if you really listen to people, they really are saying all the same things, and so, um, which is great, right? Because then it's like you can follow anybody and make improvements. And so, one of the things my my one of my first mentors, uh, Mark Versagan, who is the founder and owner of Athletes Performance now Exos, where I worked, one of his mantras was "work plus rest equals success," and you know it has a nice ring to it and. And especially with athletes, again, like we knew they know work, like that no doubt that someone at that level and has achieved that much, like they know how to work. Mm -hmm. I don't have to tell them to work Mm -hmm. or how to work, Mm -hmm. but if I only have a week with them or two weeks with them, the place I'm going to make more, you know, the most bang for my buck is, is the rest because most people don't know how to rest very well. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm going to really affect that equation, like, yes, I can teach them how to work smarter and work better in terms of improving their movement patterns. But if I can teach them some skills, some ways to rest better, now we're talking about huge gains on their performance and Mm -hmm. success. Mm -hmm. And I really think that that's what a lot of the new trendier movement um, things bring to the table is that rest piece and um, why yoga and Pilates has been so successful for people is the rest piece and not meaning like you're not doing anything rest, but really what the body recognizes as rest in terms of more of like the nervous system, you know, we're constantly in a a fight or flight is a sympathetic nervous system dominant pattern right. of stress in our life, whether it's real stress or manufactured stress, right. emotional stress or physical stress. We all have a lot of it. <laughs> and, um, most of us don't do the things that tell our body that we're not stressed anymore, that it's that it's okay to rest. It's okay to let our guard down. So our hormones and our biochemistry and all the little amazingly intelligent parts of our cells can do their work in creating balance and homeostasis in the body. So the body can actually heal itself mm-hmm. and express its resiliency. So the resiliency, you know, the definition of it is for a structure to be or structure or something to be able to have a ton of stress applied to it. And, but when the stress is removed for it to be able to bounce back to its original shape, right? Right. right. Mm-hmm. Which is also, if you follow a fascial fitness craze, yes. the definition of tensegrity and, uh-huh, and, and the fascial network. Right. Right. Uh-huh. And so, um, so it's like, man, this is where the movement is really powerful in order to do that. But then also it's where the breath piece comes in uh-huh. and, not only the breath piece, but the last piece of it is we're going back to moving on the floor and getting up from the floor is so important. And that's what yoga has always done and Pilates has always done, whether you knew it was actually a really powerful part of it or not, but it's actually being on the floor. Right. And um, stimulating certain, more than likely, you know, nobody knows why the floor creates that trigger for our body to know it's resting except um there is if you follow the work of um 
Pavel Collage and Vladimir Yanda and, and um, Carl Lewitt from the Prague School of um, Rehabilitation Practitioners in the Czech Republic, they, they use this manual therapy um, for developmental problems within youth called reflexive locomotion. And there are certain points on the body, um, reflexive points that you can stimulate on the body that stimulates the neural patterning of crawling and walking mm-hmm. and breathing and and breathing in a three-dimensional, like very restful state. Mm-hmm. And I, that's my thought process of, again, like assimilating all this information is like perhaps when we're on the floor, just like a baby, when they learn to crawl, when they're on the floor, those pressure points are getting stimulated more than when you're on furniture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when those pressure points are stimulated, those are the points of the body that are intelligent enough to know, oh, we're on the floor, we're resting. Mm -hmm. We can change our entire neurological and chemical system to reflect now that we're not stressed out. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, I think that's like that, you know, I'm like I said, I'm always questioning is what we're doing really what we're like, is what we're doing, why it's working. Is it, it's, is it really doing what we think it's doing? Yeah. So the Pilates has been known for so long, you know, and the rehab industry is great core stability. Well, unfortunately, if you look at a lot of the peer review journal articles, it's really hard to come to a consensus on number one, what core stability is, is uh-huh. and number two, how to measure it. And number three, does it even really exist? And so uh-huh. that means like, is then Pilates really doing that? Because, Maybe not. And maybe the value is that it's helping people rest better. And part of when the body's resting better, it naturally improves mobility and stability and function because it becomes more resilient and it rebounds to its original shape. Interesting. So so what do you, um, what do you mean by does core stability even exist? Like as an idea or uh, in the way that we have been thinking about it or... <clears throat> Uh, both, I guess. (laughs) Like, I don't even, uh, most of the time, like if you were to come to one of my workshops or if you were my client, I would not ever mention, I, you wouldn't hear me talk about core stability at all. Mm -hmm. Um, you talk, you'd hear me talk about movement efficiency, um, or just a movement economy, like how much your movement is costing you. Right. Um, from an energy standpoint. And, um, uh, which is like from an efficiency standpoint and you're either efficient or you're not efficient. And right. when you're efficient, you have that dynamic alignment, like you were talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you not only have dynamic alignment, but you have quick reaction time. You, um, you burn calories more efficiently. Like everything is just efficient. So to me, like the way most people would describe core stability I describe as efficiency mm-hmm. yeah because uh, you know I'm I'm kind of with with Philip Beach like if you look at the anatomy like where's the core yeah like, what's the core <laughs> like and if you want to pick out structures then you can pick out structures that people think are the core but are not really the core and I think to me, what, like if I had to really pick, if somebody like was help, holding a gun to my head and said, Anna, you need to pick a core. Like, what do you think the core is? What do you think is then the foundation or the most important part of the body? I'd say the most important part of the body as a human organism is the organs, uh-huh. 
period, end of statement. It's the organs. And so if the organs aren't functioning and are not happy, then everything else goes into protection mode to take care of them. Right. And also in the, in the sense of core stability, if you're saying course, having good core stability helps you maintain quote unquote good posture, uh-huh. then I'd say it's the fascia because without our fascia, we have no shape. Right. Mm-hmm. And well, without we- our fascial system, we are a blob of skin and bones and liquid on and organs on floor. And very and little, so yeah, I, very little ability ahead. to even communicate without the right. fascial system. And, to, you know, to transduce energy and to dissipate load and all of the things that are necessary for being in space. Yes. And it's just like, to me, it's like everything is so integrated that you can't have one without the other. That it's like, how do you pick something and call it the core or call it like the number one thing that you have to have? No, you have to have a, a, a body that works Mm -hmm. and feels good Mm -hmm. and because when you have a body that works and feels good you want to move because it's fun you have like just like joseph pilates said you have that zest for life like it comes back like the more in tune you are and the more connected you are to your fashion the more resilient you are like no joke like i have had moments in the the last few months that i've been running first of all i I hate i've always hated running Mm -hmm. but i hate running because it hurts Mm -hmm. now i'm running and it does hurt and I have flashes of being in the first grade again mm-hmm. and like hearing the recess bell and like like being so excited to go out and run towards the monkey bars to go play <laughs> right like it's just this like when it's all in tune when you treat it all as one thing instead of a reductionist view of parts yes. I, I just think it's so much more simple and it's so much more enjoyable it doesn't yeah. feel like work anymore yeah it's something that you want to do um, well, and, and I, bottom, sorry, I, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking like the bottom line too, from the teaching perspective or the coaching or training perspective is that when we do approach movement from this, um, perspective of isolating pieces, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to learn. It's not just yes. hard, but sometimes it's impossible to, it's impossible, yes. hard to learn and impossible to integrate because we're not talking about integration at all. We're just reducing the body to, to into pieces right and, and then the brain of the student this like there's really no way for them to integrate that information uh-uh. let alone fully translate that into uh the felt sense of how the body you know could move more beneficially there's like it's uh you know you know one example of that i think that we've talked about is just the difference between internal and external cueing right and uh-huh. the way we can just be way way too um, complex with the way that we're actually teaching movement or encouraging movement. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking about a couple of other things as you were talking. I mean, you said in terms of like the, you know, is there even core stability? Is there even a core, you know, it's like, it's so interesting, but it does make me think of two things in particular. And one is, um, again, this kind of holistic approach to the system functionality, right? Whole system functionality. It's not about, I think one of the things that I have strayed away from a lot in my own teaching is, you know, engage the abdominals and then move. It's like that kind of pre, uh, organization, like explicit, like I'm going to tell my core to engage and then it's going to engage. And then I'm going to think about the next movement is so counter to what we're actually trying to get to happen that, you know, it's right. Like, so, 
so this idea that it's all connected. So why don't we just connect it all in our movement training? You know, because things like the pelvic floor and the TA and the multiply, they're all supposed to turn on before you're even thinking about it anyway. So does right. it, does it <laughs> exactly. make, you know, does it make sense for us to say, okay, take an inhale, exhale, engage that muscle, think about it, locate it, sense it, engage it if you can to the appropriate degree for, you know, for the appropriate length of time. And now just at the right moment, move the legs and they do all of these things. Like there's just, how is that ever going to really, I mean, obviously it offers value and benefit, right? We all feel better when we're moving thoughtfully. You know, this is not to devalue all the work that we do, but oh no, Mm-mm. I mean, just to give it some, so from my perspective to think that's how that idea of like, well, what is the core and is there really even a core an isolated specific one thing that we can call the core? Is there anything really, uh, you know, is, is core stability a thing or is it just an idea that we've come up with to make it easier, you know? Right. Or, you know, for perpetuating the, you know, a method of movement or whatever it might be. Right. And then the other thing is just what Philip, I remember, um, when I took my first workshop with Philip, he said, don't be a tissue fascist. Like this is yeah. not about, yeah. you know, and it's not surprising. All of us are coming from the, you know, at that point from the Thomas Myers model where, you know, and then all of the, you know, um, the, the burgeoning, not just burgeoning, but like the influx of research around fascia and fascial oriented training, uh-huh. you know, it's so, we're so kind of narrowly focused on that being the thing, but his, his idea, you know, and the contractile fields, man, they really just mess us all up because right. they're not isolated to one tissue type and they're not isolated to one system in the body. They're totally integrated. Um, which makes me also think like, yeah, this maybe th- there is just no core, right? There's no, yeah. I mean, it's an illusion. Um, you know, it's an oversimplification of, of, you know, how we can teach an idea. Um, but maybe it's that we've gone too far in that direction. And now it's now, as you said before, it's like, are we really doing what we think we're doing? I mean, we've been right. working with such an oversimplified uh, you know, idea or tool, uh, for so long that it's just, you know, now we've just shot ourselves in the foot a little bit. Right. Right. And I mean, I'm with you too. It's like, man, like I got really good results with my clients for years before I, I, like I had these opinions. It's not that we're doing something wrong. It's just, you know, I'm just, I like to, like, I like to know the whys. And so I'm, you know, again, it's like going back to like, if I'm doing the hundred with someone, like, what am I really doing? Like, mm-hmm. what is the value of it? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. And, and, and because then for me, when I'm sequencing programming, then I have a different reason to put it somewhere yeah. than what I thought previously. Right. And so yeah. then it's like, because, you know, most people don't want to train their body for three hours a day, like the athletes, right? They want to do as much as needed, but as little as possible to feel good. Like we just want to feel, I don't like to train. I worked in a, you know, basically a gym for 11 years. I don't, if I never lift up a weight again in my life, I would be thrilled. Yeah. But it, and it's, you know, and honestly, it's never been what's made me tick in the first place. Yeah. Um, I did gymnastics. I like to move my body. And so why, like, what's the rule? 
people saying that I have to all of a sudden use all these added masses to get a certain job done and make my body feel good. And Mm -hmm. it's like, I don't, you know, I don't agree. Uh Um, did I get some good results at one time with weights? Of course I did. Mm -hmm. Um, but did it require a lot of work? Absolutely. It required a gym. It required, um, a a lot of time, uh, like more time than I spend on my body now. And and I don't think I actually felt as good as I do now. And yeah. so to me, that's what I want. I want to just feel good and then be able to do whatever I want with my day instead of worrying about getting my hour and a half to three hours in the gym. Yeah. But if somebody loves like people love the gym, people love that. If that's what you love to do, then go do it. I'm not yeah. saying it's bad for you, but it's not what I want to do. And so I always tease people say, oh, like, I am 100% understand that all the knowledge I gain in the, to make my athletes do better is just a false, like, I'm totally lying to them when I say that because it, at the end of the day, it's always about me. Like, how do I make myself feel better mm-hmm. in my own body? Um, and so everything is sort of, all, like, I'm always seeking new ideas and seeking answers based on myself. Yeah, and, yeah. But that's just, that's, if any. If every if anybody really deep down thinks about it, that's why I do it too. Sure. And like even helping people, I help people because it makes me feel good. Yeah. Oh, your your um your exposure to Corey is coming through. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I just exactly. Keep, I just keep thinking Byron exactly. Katie, Byron Katie. This is exactly what Byron exactly. Katie was talking about. You know, we're just we're all we're all um just this is gonna maybe just appall some people, but. Um, you know, we're just yes, all in, inherently selfish. Like we're, we're driven by what makes yeah. us feel good. And the truth is we do a lot of good from that perspective, right? We're, oh, absolutely. We're yeah. mm-hmm. just like what you're saying. We're, we're driven to help people because it makes us feel good because we feel like we're adding value to the world, but that's all about us. That's not about something yeah. else. It's not about the world and it's not about us. Well, but knowing, you know, and then it goes, well, and this, I just had this conversation today about, uh, with my friend, you know, and, and it, again, it goes back to like the tissue fascist thing. It's like, we are a human organism, which includes not only the body and everything in the body, but the mind and the spirit, yes. like mm-hmm. the emotions are part of like, you can't take the psychology out of it. You Absolutely. can't take the spiritual stuff out of it. And mm-hmm. so the minute you try to, you're missing the boat. And, mm-hmm. and again, like not everybody likes to be so focused on their body. We are all in an industry that we like to focus on our body, which is fine. But you can get similar, if not better, results focusing on the mind and the spiritual stuff, too. And people do. Like, how many times do you hear somebody like, meditation changed my life. Meditation. I meditated, and I lost 60 pounds. And I went from not being able to run to loving running. Or I, you know, found God or whatever religion. I started going to church on a regular basis, and I'm a completely different person, right? Mm -hmm. It's because each one of those affects the other. And so... Who am I to tell somebody who doesn't want to go in the gym or doesn't want to do Pilates that they should like yeah. do whatever you want to do. But I feel like as a healthcare practitioner, my job is to understand that all the different perspectives I can offer somebody to make them achieve what they want to achieve, mm-hmm. which comes down to the question was sometimes I get people say, goes, Oh, I want to do Pilates. Do you do Pilates? Can I do Pilates with you? Well, of course you can. Like, I, know, I can take you to a Pilates session. Uh-huh. But I said, I said, do you like Pilates? Have you done Pilates? Is that something that you want to do? Or 
are you doing Pilates because somebody told you it's good for your core and you <laughs> fixing your core will make you feel better. So at athletes performance, we used to try to figure out what people's it is, you yeah. know, it's like, so why are you doing it? Mm-hmm. And at running's like that too. Why do you want to get run, back to running? If someone's injured. Oh, when can I run again? Well, why do you want to run? Mm-hmm. Oh, I run and run because I like to do it for my workout. Well, okay. But what does it give to you? Like, mm-hmm. What does running make you like? Why is that your workout? Oh, running makes me feel strong. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do other things make you feel strong? And, you know, I basically get them to realize that it's just a means to the end. Like, yeah. do you want to do Pilates? If you want, love Pilates because you love that apparatus, you love the movement, then do Pilates. But don't ask to do Pilates if you simply just want to feel better in your body. Yeah. If you want to feel better in your body? I have a million tools that I can help you with and we'll find the right one for you. Mm-hmm. But if I don't ask why they really want to do something, then I don't, then, you know, Pilates might not be the answer. It's not, it, you know, it might not be somebody who's going to stick in my Pilates studio for life. Right. And that's okay yeah. because I want people to feel better in their body. That's my goal. Yeah. And Pilates is one of the great tools that I use, but it's not the only tool. Mm-hmm. It brings up so many interesting things uh, that we have not gotten into before, which I'm totally loving. Um, I was rereading one of Eric Franklin's books this morning, uh, you know, and of course he's all about imagery and, um, you know, but in terms of the mind piece, right, of that that mental, emotional, uh, psychological component that, uh, as I think many of us know, you know, is layered into our tissue. Like it's just, uh, it's inseparable. We cannot, you know, we cannot address the body without unraveling the chemical trauma in the body, the emotional Uh trauma in the body. Um, And he's talking about flexibility and he's talking about how, you know, working with imagery takes practice and, and it's not enough to just roll and to stretch and manipulate the tissue, but you have to really start to think about your body in a different way. You have to think about yeah. it. You know, you have to talk to it. You have to imagine it. You have to, you know, be with it. You have to move in a way that's driven by your imagination, your mind state, your emotional state, your psychological state that supports fluidity, lightness, yes. mobility, you know, buoyancy, resilience, like all of these things. Um, which, you know, is of course something that I know and, and have worked with, but it was just, it's so, you know, he talks about it so blatantly of like, the practice is not just these tools that I'm giving you, uh, in terms of movement tools, but there are all of these, um, you know, let's just say psychological, right. Mental tools that are going to make perhaps even a more profound effect, uh, in difference in your body than the act of whatever you do physically. Absolutely. And I mean, and that's, I, I, my goal, and that's kind of where the Burrell Institute comes in too, is like the smartest person in the room is not me and it's not the person's story. It's the body. And so I'm really trying to teach people how to listen to their body, to stop being floating heads, to realize that there's all this stuff attached to them and that it is just as intelligent as their brain. Mm -hmm. And, and if they get quiet enough and if they pay attention enough and they start ex- sensing through all of their senses that they can actually hear the body talk to them. And the body does always want to be that resilient, light, free-flowing, happy, useful thing. Mm-hmm. And so 
if you listen to it, it will guide you in that direction. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, people don't listen to it. Mm-hmm. And so when you don't listen to it, you're trying to force it somewhere it doesn't want to be, and it fights back. And right. it fights back through tension, and right. it fights back through pain, and it fights back through, you know, crappy movement and mm-hmm. um, disease and, and all sorts of stuff. And so, you know, that's really what I'm I, my tool, every tool I give to somebody is just, you know, like, just like Eric was saying, like, it's a tool. It's not necessarily even going to be the perfect tool for what you need, but in order to know if it is or it isn't, and we need to pick a different tool, you have to start paying attention. Right. Yeah. And he talks a lot about that in terms of, you know, how imagery works. Like for some of us, we're very organized around our physical experience, right? We're very intelligent. We can articulate it. We can sense it. So using imagery is really not a stretch. It's not, it's it's actually feels very natural, but for a lot of people, that's not the case. And it takes practice. And what makes it work over time is that soft focused attention of really attending to how does my body feel when I'm at dis-ease, when I'm uncomfortable, when I'm in pain, what does that really feel like? Like, what kind of discomfort is it? Where is it located? Is it only in one place? You know, like, just that soft attention and focus on the body is is the thing that elevates us to, a, you know, a place of intelligence so, uh-huh. that, so that, you know, imagery and metaphor and analogy can actually work, which brings me to a couple of the things that we have talked about before, uh, (laughs) which is, um, uh, well, gosh, like a real, like a handful of things. So, um, we've talked a lot about internal and external cueing, and I think this, you know, starts to, to play into what we're, we're going on about now. Um, Uh we've also talked about, um, how for a movement experience to stick, right? For it to take hold in the nervous system, um, and be planted as an implicit memory, it has to be positive, right? It has to be, has to be a positive, um, experience associated with that. And it was making me, when you were talking earlier about like running now, when you're running, you're, you're totally connected to, that joyful memory of running as a uh-huh. child. And Being the first person on the monkey bars. <laughs> yeah. And it's like yep. somehow you got to that point where that memory is, is really being revealed. It's really coming to the service and that, and then that perpetuates a greater experience of like ease and efficiency and, and vitality in the body, right? Where the uh-huh. running becomes even less effortful because you're driven by that positive um, memory. So, so talk a little bit about like, how does that play out for us? Um, when we're, when we're training or when we're coaching a student, um, like how does it work and how does it not work? And, um, yeah, well, so how it works, how it works is you have to have sort of a lot of tricks up your sleeve in, in picking different types of cues and seeing and knowing your person, the person in front of you and, and seeing what works best for them. Um, and also, realizing that, um, well, understanding from a performance standpoint, the difference, you know, what internal cues and external cues do. Um, and also to like what you're looking for as the clinician. Mm -hmm. So like you shouldn't just be 
talking, 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 not paying attention or just paying attention to the movement. You want to be paying attention to their whole body mm-hmm. and you're, you're wanting to notice when they have one of those positive experiences because they might not notice it. So you might need to point it out to them. Right. And because, so when one of my athletes has one of those experiences, I stop them and I go, oh my gosh, something just felt really good, didn't it? And they're like, yeah. I go, what did it feel like? And they explain it. And I'm like, okay, do you think you could remember that? Like, if you remembered that, do you think it, you like would be right back here? And they're like, oh yeah, absolutely. Or does that trigger another memory? And, um, and that's what I tell them. I'm like, hold on to that. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's what I want you to hold on to today. If that's the only thing you hold on to for our session today is that it felt like running out at recess to the monkey bars. That's it. That's yeah. it. Because then every time you go and do that task, whether it's running or the hundred, I want it to feel like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're going to get your best movement pattern if they can feel that mm-hmm. right and so and this is again like assimilating information like that's what like uh Deepak Chopra and like the, the Rhonda Byrne the secret person like they talk about like manifesting things you want mm-hmm. and, and being grateful not just saying you're grateful for something but feeling it like mm-hmm. feeling what it feels like to be, already get that yeah. and that's the exact same thing in movement is like when you can really feel like I, I like I 100% closed my eyes and I was seven again <laughs> like I was a seven-year-old like I know how it felt to be seven-year-old Anna running out at recess mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. if I can imagine that feeling then I go run I don't need all the little tools I was using to recreate that same exact movement pattern. I just right. need to hold on to that feeling. Yeah. And when you are in that feeling, you are really present and things go well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do that. And so, and I think Eric, so where I first started playing around with that is, you know, Eric Franklin said, you know, look for the kinesthetic experience, like yes. look for the kinesthetic um, change, yes. like mm-hmm. always looking mm-hmm. for that. And as soon as I get that, that I know that's the t- either the type of cue that they love mm-hmm. or that I got a positive emotion with it. Yeah. 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 And so, so I know then it will stick. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it gets stored, right? I mean, it's not like, yes, it, it gets stored. So it's more likely in the parts of the brain that store motor patterns. When you look at the research, if there is an emotion, especially a positive emotion associated with a movement experience, that movement experience is automatically banked in the piggy bank, mm-hmm. saved forever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you don't have a positive emotion with it, if it's just like if I was like, okay, in order to run, I want you to have your pelvis forward and, um, you know, dorsiflex your feet and land right behind the metatarsals and you know, keep your chest up and breathe this way and breathe through your nose. And, you know, if I give them a bunch of rules and they still get a good movement experience, like a good movement pattern out of it, right. in order for that to stick to the next day of training, they need to have a, like the most perfect day afterwards, uh-huh. like no stress, perfect nutrition, no alcohol, great hydration, you know, eight to 10 hours of sleep within the proper circadian rhythm time right before <laughs> midnight, You're right? In order, that's really what ha- needs to happen for our brain to store it in the right spot for it to become a memory uh-huh. or like a movement memory. Right. And so if that doesn't happen, I love Nick Winkleman um, is the person that um, speaks on this quite a bit. And I 
love his analogy. He's like, if that doesn't happen, they come in the next day to train with you. And it's like, it's like yesterday didn't exist. Yes. It's like the men in black came up with their pen and they snapped it in front of their face and they forgot everything. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and you're like thinking to yourself as the teacher or the clinician, you're like, what the heck? Like, yeah. how you did this perfectly yesterday. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at you like the cues you're giving them are completely foreign. Like they don't even know where their pelvis is anymore. Yeah. And we've all had and that you're experience. Like, yeah, we've yeah. all experienced that. I'm yeah. like, really? We went over all the anatomy of your pelvis yesterday. Yeah, yeah. You really can't point out where your pubic bone is yeah. now? Like, really? Uh-huh. And that's why. Because you gave them a lot of internal cues, which it which are really good for creating awareness. Understand that we're not a floating head. Right. But they're not really good for, for performance. And yeah. they're not really good for repeated um, performance of big movements. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that for a second. So in it, when we're talking about internal cueing, we're talking about trying to get something to happen or sense something happening from inside of us, right? It's like having an interoceptive experience, a felt experience of the body and moving, moving from within us, right? And, um, within, yeah, within us, like, yeah, it can be like inside or it can be simply like, when we're talking about hip extension, right? Like it can be like move your hip behind you, like extend your leg behind you. Right. So the body like, relating internal. to itself. Yeah. Right. Did you and external would be like push the ground away mm-hmm. behind you. Mm-hmm. And we have talked about, so then the body relating to some, some to the uh, external situation, right? To the external environment. Right. Right. Okay. Uh So, and what we have talked about, um, you know, because, because you, you have over the years been so focused on performance that the further away the cue, the external cue, the greater the, the effort, right. The greater the exertion. Well, in terms of, um, for your novice or master person. Mm -hmm. So like if I'm teaching someone how to hit a golf ball, um, and they're, they've never hit a golf ball before, I would want to use an external cue that's closer to them. Uh-huh. Uh, if, if we're talking to a professional golfer who, who has golfed their whole life, and I'm trying to improve their swing, I'm going to give them an, like a farther away cue. Right. So something down towards the pin or, uh-huh. you know, a tree uh-huh. in the distance uh-huh. or something like that. Whereas the, the novice athlete, I would cue the golf club. Yes. The reason why I wouldn't cue the golf club in the golfer and, and so why a farther distance works for master athletes is because of the neural mapping that occurs for people, right? Like you have a golf club in your hand long enough and it's mapped in your brain. Yes. Right. Right. So, right. So then the golf club is effectively and actually an internal cue for that golfer. Uh huh. Uh huh. Whereas it's an external cue for me who never golfs. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So, so that's part of the reason why uh, you, have to, you have to know who you're speaking to. Like, what's their, you know, we, in the strength and conditioning, in her, in, uh, strength and conditioning industry, and we would call it like their training age. What's their training age with Pilates or what's their training age with golf? Uh huh. Uh-huh. Are they young or are they old? Uh-huh. And if they're old, then your external cue should have some distance to them. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So like a Pilates, someone who's been doing Pilates for life, the reformer is mapped in their brain. Uh-huh. And so when you tell them to, in like leg work to press the foot bar away, you, you're giving them an internal 
MLQ. Got it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because the reformer is mapped to them. Mm-hmm. So you would want to say press the wall away or press the, you know, car away if they're facing the parking lot. Right. You know. Right. So one of the things that uh, I think we have touched on before too is uh, which feels like it's relevant to a couple of different points that we've talked about today so far, which is um, when you over cue or over teach, right? You're giving either a lot of internal cueing without any external cueing, or yeah. you're over complicating a movement so it's it's broken down into too many separate pieces, um, or you're not, you're not really tuning into that, uh, you know, that, that positive mental, emotional experience. It's, it's like, it just, it becomes too much to integrate, right? It becomes too much to hold. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's literally too much for them to think about. Yeah. Like we only have a a certain amount of attention capacity. Right. And so when you give them too much information, even if it's good information, they like stop, stop getting anything. They stop listening. They stop participating. They stop listening. They don't pick anything up because, and and then nothing gets stored, even if it was pretty good. Right. Because they, their capacity was just overmaxed. Right. And, Mm -hmm. And that, that capacity again, improves over time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, sure. um, novices are going to have a smaller capacity of attention than masters, but, um, still you don't want to totally take up all their space. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just like our iPhones. You don't want to put too many videos for your kids on there because yeah. then you're not going to have any video room for work stuff. That's right. That's right. Um, so how does this all relate to um, what we were just about to talk about earlier, which is about working from the muscle, training the muscle versus yeah. something else? Training movement or muscle. Um, so I first, I guess my, my first um, sort of experience in how maybe you cueing the muscles wasn't a good idea was with Eric Franklin's work when he talks about the importance of cueing the bones mm-hmm. because when you cue a muscle our brain only knows one way of what it feels like to contract a muscle and that's a concentric contraction right. and concentric contractions um you know they amp up really quickly and they create a lot of tension and if you have a lot of tension you're not moving right and um a concentric contraction is also what happens to the muscle when it's protecting something so you know it was just kind of like a trigger point point. Mm-hmm. and so you see that a lot with people that are in pain and um disease and um injury and that kind of thing and so I'd already been kind of I think about it a lot and so I had already kind of moved away from cueing a lot of the muscles and, and telling somebody to contract their core or TA or pelvic floor just from that standpoint of like, well, why would I want to bind up the, the joints that bind up the bones from moving? Well, that's what I'm trying to do mm-hmm. is get them to move through these joints that they're not used to moving through. And so then again, with the Baral Institute, one of the first classes I took, the teacher said, Jean-Pierre says that the muscles are the garbage can of the body. <laughs> and I said, and it, at a time, I don't think I realized, like, how much it offended me. Um, 
it's not until now that I'm more accepting of it and I agree with them that I realize how offended I really was. But it makes sense that I was because for my entire life, I've been, my entire professional life at least, I've been obsessed with the muscles uh-huh. and thinking that the muscles had everything to do with anything. Like that everybody had glute amnesia, that everybody needed to squeeze their glutes. That the key to happiness and the key to feeling good was to squeeze your glutes. And, and tighten up your core. Right. And so so it's like, yeah, that was like my religion for many, many years. And somebody just flat out told me it was the garbage can. <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. And I try to like be very open when I'm learning things. And if the person teaching me says something I don't like, I don't completely brush them off. Right. Like I feel like I'm sure, well, I know I totally offend people when I, when I, um, not offend them in, like, a Donald Trump sort of way, but, like, offend them in, like, a, uh, I challenge some very deep-held beliefs within their head. And um, I think that's, like, I love it when that happens. Like, if I don't, if I teach a course and I haven't um, challenged some deep beliefs in people, then I don't feel like I did a very good job. Yeah, yeah. And in... On the flip side, when when my when I get asked questions at the end of a course or during a course, and they don't challenge my like they don't challenge what I just told them, I also feel like I didn't do a good job because just because I'm sharing it and this is what I believe right now, it doesn't mean it's true. Right. You know, and I'm probably wrong. I'm probably wrong. I, I mean, even though I love to hear the words "you're right," I'm probably <laughs> wrong, and I'm okay with that. Because being wrong is easy to fix, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. You you learn a different way. You understand that that's a, that was the more correct way, and you move on with your life. Mm-hmm. The problem is when we're when you are holding on to beliefs so much that you will never admit that you could be wrong, and right. so and you won't let go. Right. And so so when they told me the muscles are the garbage can of the body, I was like, uh, I don't like that, but I'll listen to you. Mm-hmm. And then the more and more I practiced their work, their manual therapy, the work, the more I realized, hmm, as I treat the organs, and, you know, the organs are easy to think about in the trunk, right? Liver, kidney, mm-hmm. stomach, kind of thing. But the organs in the periphery, we don't often think of organs, even though they are. And those are the nerves mm-hmm. and the arteries and the veins, little capillaries, the lymph, mm-hmm. all of those vessels that are running through our arms and legs. When I free up space around them and allow them to glide better and allow the flow of their fluid to move better, Mm -hmm. the muscles that appeared to be short or stiff, tight or trigger pointed, however you would like to refer to it, are not actually like that. They Mm -hmm. completely let go as soon as the organs are not in a position to be injured. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. As soon as the um, the uh, nerves, the vessels, the vasculature are free to move and free-flowing fluid, everything lets go, and then you move well. And when muscles are not all bound up, guess what? The joints, you actually move better in the joints. Right. And then now they have a good movement experience, and then it's stored, and now it's like, well, that was easy. It, it, like, I feel sometimes... Well, <laughs> I always tell people, like, sometimes it's a really quick thing. Like, I sometimes will treat, especially with athletes, because they're quick at everything. I sometimes treat them once. For Like, I had this football player the other day. He had toe pain for four weeks, hadn't played. 
I treated him one session, he played the next day, and then in the game that Sunday. And so it's like, they're like, oh my God, it's magic. No, it's not magic. I freed up the thing that was the most important. We got better blood flow to it. And then the body didn't have to protect it anymore. So it said, okay, knock yourself out, go play. Have as much fun as you want. Uh And so it's like, okay, the more and more I... The more and more I listen to someone's body and really find the structure that it is, it is protecting or really get them out of the protection mode, get them into the rest and digest mode and get them to learn how to flip back and forth on their own, like have it in balance, right? Balance their autonomic nervous system. The more profound the effects are and the more I never touch the muscles and I never tell them to activate a muscle or squeeze something or relax something or anything. I just like literally it can be as boring, the most boring external or internal cue in the world of like, move your arm here, move your leg here. And then the movement is just good. Yeah. So basically and, you're and, saying and, that the muscle becomes, uh, it becomes the block, it blocks uh, efficient movement from happening because it's protecting because it's protecting, because it's protecting something uh-huh. and you're not listening on the body to find out what is protecting. Uh-huh. And the, the muscles like, Oh my gosh, I'm smarter than you. <laughs> you can do anything you want to get me to turn on or turn off. But as soon as you walk away, as soon as I have a chance to go back to what I was doing, I'm going to go back to what I'm doing. Right. Right. Which is why it feels like banging your head against the wall when you're trying to improve mobility sometimes in people. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Yeah, because if you're not actually fixing the fixing the thing that they're having trouble compensating for, then the body is always going to go back to protect it. Right, right. That's what makes us so amazing. Is like our body actually will take care of itself or protect itself. And so, are you know? Do you have tools to help it, or are you fighting it? Mm-hmm. And it's like I feel like with a lot of the deep tissue work people do. And the painful stretching and painful, a lot of the painful modalities will think that they need to do in order to feel better. Yeah. I actually think you're fighting the body. Mm-hmm. And yeah, eventually it gives up because it's like, okay, I was, it's a, I, a friend of mine loves, I always give HR analogies, which is strange since I've never worked in HR, but I'm like, think about okay. it. Like if you have somebody in your office complaining all the time, you have three options. You can completely ignore them. That's an option. Okay. You can listen to them and try to address the problem, the real problem. <clears throat> and then, or you could just beat the crap out of them and can until they fuck it off. Yeah. <laughs> and, all right, like if you beat the crap out of them and they can't talk at all, like, man, the office is a great place to be for the rest of the day. Uh-huh. But then two days later, when they come to, they're talking again and they're maybe even talking a little bit louder or you're just like have a little bit shorter fuse with them. Right. Because you're like, Oh my God, I thought we talked about this. <laughs> right. Funny. And right. But, and, and that's how it is. So it's like, okay, are you, is the deep tissue is, is it beating the crap out of something that's trying to protect you? Or is it really doing what, again, is it, are you doing what you think you're doing when you, apply a modality or an exercise. Right. So let's talk about how this is real can be relevant for people who are not, who are not doing hands-on manipulation. And the two things I'm thinking of are 
cueing from the bones instead of the muscles as one sure. option. And then, yep. and then working with uh, some of the fascial oriented training um, principles, you know, priming the body, preparing the body um, so that there is a clearer communication, more open system communication uh, triggers the parasympathetic nervous system. Like all of those things that we can yeah. do with something like appropriate, you know, like through the mount method or through some of the the ball yeah. rolling work. Of sure. The yeah, I'm not or. totally against massage or, or, and I'm not even totally against deep tissue. Um, it's just, I'm against deep tissue over and over in the same spot sure. with no results. Yes, or right, only, right, like, right. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, it would be the same of like, let's do the hundred again. And it looks like crap, and it hurts your neck, and it hurts your hip flexors. Yeah, and it's like, but let's just keep doing let's it just because, keep doing it. right? Yeah, because it's supposed to help you. Yeah, and then I, I guess the other thing, you know, within this that I sort of have switched to from the Baral Institute and from realizing like the body is probably the smart one, not me, <laughs> is um, like stop fighting against it. Mm-hmm. If something you're doing creates tension or creates a feeling of apprehension, or if someone's breathing pattern changes, or the look on their face changes, you're going in the wrong direction. The body usually likes to go in the direction of least resistance first, sort of warm itself up, get the joint fluids going, get the proprioceptors turned on, and then if you try the other direction... Now it will go there a little bit more freely. Right. And because, and that's the Baral Institute thing. Like m- the majority of their treatments, the manual therapy treatments are through a technique what's called induction, mm-hmm. which is basically you load the tissue, you back off, and then you follow where it goes. Uh-huh. So you're listening to the, t- you're, you're listening to the body and the body says, Hey, what if we go over here first? What if we rotate to the right first, even though I need more left rotation if I rotate to the right and then I actually side bend to the right and I go into a little extension as soon as I take a deep breath I go right over to left rotation and more left rotation than I had before uh-huh. Uh-huh. yeah the and so it's just a different approach most of the time we've been taught okay you're limited in left rotation let's stretch the crap of left rotation yeah. and let's not address right rotation at all because it's not the problem right yes Right. And my feeling always was, too, that the side that's harmonious, you know, we'll just call it a side, um, was going to be able to teach us so much more than than starting with the side that's impaired and then trying to to use your analogy, like, beat it into submission. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It also, uh, what, what else? I was just thinking about something else that I was kind of chuckling in my head about, but, of course... It probably wouldn't have been as funny, so I've promptly forgotten it. Um, uh, So moving from the bones and doing some of this, like, well, even to bring us back to, okay, so the Franklin work, uh, soft focused attention, um, you know, the rolling, the manual therapy, self-manual therapy, self-massage, you know, done Uh mindfully and appropriately. Um, all really beneficial so that we're not just playing into, um, the garbage cans, right? We're not just right. being, we're not being yeah. totally stymied and held hostage by, um, what, how the muscles are behaving. Right. Um, I was thinking about, okay, so this idea of moving in the path of least resistance, I hope, yes. I hope I'm going to be able to pull two ideas together here, but we'll see. 
Um, there's also something that I talk a lot about, which is, uh, well, I teach from this framework called motivational interviewing, which was developed for uh, the rehabilitation setting. And it's a whole uh, framework for coaching and supporting, um, you know, addicts in, in recovery. And uh -huh. one of the components, so so the, the components are like appropriate, genuine, empathy coaching, so appropriate empathy, um, discrepancy, like, like you said early on, like if somebody's having a positive experience, sometimes we need to point that out because... Right, you know, because they may not notice it. They may not notice it, and that develops discrepancy. It's like, look, when you did this before this way, you were hating it. Now we've done it a new way, and you're totally in love with it. So, right. But but another component is what they call roll rolling with resistance, and this is about the mental emotional resistance. This makes me think of like the same is true. We've been drawing all these parallels between, you know, the emotional let's call it the subtle body or the emotional body and the physical body. But if, uh -huh. you know, it's like, it's this, it's like all playing in together, right? Supporting and promoting positive, um, positive connotations with movement experiences. Yep. Um, you know, allow moving, moving in the path of least resistance. That to me is always also a reflection of like, let's have a positive experience. Let's not just start out by focusing on what's wrong with you. You know, it's like, right. Uh, yes. It's why I've always had it. It's why I've never wanted to go into the therapeutic realm of, um, teaching. Right. Cause they love finding out what's wrong with you. Yeah. Well, it's because, you know, like if I go in with SI joint pain, what I know is probably going to happen is we're going to talk about my dysfunctional SI joint for the next 10 sessions. And basically I'm not into it. Like, yes. I, like I just, like, I have no interest in being, uh, I'm going to say victim of that. That's a little bit strong, but, um, but, but no. it is. I mean, but I like, that's like, how sad is that? Like somebody wants, like has made the choice to feel better and has come to you for help. And the first thing you did is point out everything that was wrong with them. And I am a hundred percent guilty of that. And the first athlete, I, I had a professional hockey athlete at one day that pointed it out to me and I was like, wow, I've never really thought about it that way. Yeah. And you're right. Because he's like, Anna, like, like, honestly, he's like, I know that you're supposed to be good and be able to help me. He's like, but I felt good. And I was just coming to you to sort of like improve my performance and feel better. And you basically told me that I don't breathe correctly and I can't walk correctly. And I'm like, lucky to, <laughs> like, I'm lucky to be even like upright, let alone playing hockey. And I was like, oh. And then, you know what? He never came back to work with me. And yeah. I don't blame him. I wouldn't have wanted to work with me either. Yeah. Well, I think but, we're I mean, all think, guilty like, of that. I am so grateful for his comments. Like, like so wonderful that he felt comfortable enough with me to share that. Because I was like, huh. Okay, I see your point. Maybe I should, like, not be so blatantly everything's wrong with you to try to get you to want to work with me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think maybe there's a better way. And then I took a webinar from Tom. Myers and he said that too like before you tell somebody what's wrong with them how about you point out five good things about them yeah yeah well I mean this just plays into all of the things we've been talking about too which is you know like um creating that positive experience and not being attached to the perfect movement outcome we all have different levels of potential so the other thing the thing that you and I have talked about in the past is just this idea of awareness and um, you do that. I just interviewed a teacher, uh, a local teacher, James Crater, who is really exceptional at this too. 
Um, but it, it's about asking questions and there's so much value in asking questions. You know, you've mentioned so far how you ask questions to, um, connect with the person's like positive history of moving or you're asking right. questions to like, okay, I noticed a, po- a shift in you. What was that about? What did it feel like? How was it, you know, how was it good? Why did it feel easy? Like, let's, I need to know more about that so we can do more of that. Okay, so right. this, and this is a very different piece, right? Of, it is. Oh, it, I mean, especially sometimes in the Pilates world too, with it being such a dance background of like having the person say something like, I don't know. I, I only did dance for so long, but it was like, I was afraid of my teacher. I couldn't talk. I couldn't say anything. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so like make it like allowing an environment for conversation and for them to trust you enough to tell you what feels good and what doesn't feel good and um, give you a little bit of a history and, and know it's okay to speak up yeah. um, whenever they want to is like so important and so valuable because like I said, their body is the thing that's the most intelligent in the room, not you. Yeah. Their body is going to be what fixes them, not you. And so like if you don't create an environment that is you asking authentic, genuine questions and like listening like, not just asking questions, but, like, being there and listening and being okay with sometimes that means you don't get very much stuff done. Right. right. Um, then so be it. Like, yeah. Well, to me, too, it's, like, asking asking questions not only gives me information, but it allows the student to become more aware of their own mind state or their own yep. relationship to their pain or their own relationship to yeah. their motivation. You know, it's like, well... You know, like what, you know, tell me the most positive movement experience you've had in the last 24 hours or yeah. tell me, you know, tell me one of the happiest memories in terms of movement or sports, you know, from your childhood. You yeah. know, like all of these uh, probing questions that I think we're often afraid to ask because we think yeah. it's outside of our scope um, right. could potentially be the most important pieces of our yep. coaching and our training. So I just think that's so interesting. I mean, this is a piece that I've been working on a lot uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, and it's the reason why it's come up in our conversations, collaborating with my colleague Ann Bishop uh, on the master level program that we're getting ready to start, which is the science and psychology of teaching, which is really exciting. And so we've been integrating a lot of this idea of how do we, you know, how do we assess a person's emotional orientation to their body or their movement experience, um, you know, just working with the mind state a little bit more overtly than I think most teachers are comfortable with. Uh, And then been working with Joseph Quinn, who I just interviewed, who's the founder of Pilates Metrics, which is getting ready. It's an Uh app, an iPad app that's getting ready to launch in developing a library of quote unquote exercises. And I've have built in this piece called off the mat and off the mat is not, it's it's not exercises at all. It's not movement. It's questions. It's awareness prompts, right? It's, it's like trying to get the student to dig a little deeper. And also for me to assess where they are in terms of, you know, motivation and personal responsibility and, you know, how all of that is shifting because, it feels like it's, it's, it's connected, right? I think is the bottom line of what we've discussed. Oh, absolutely. So far. 
So yeah, the whole the whole point of our today's topic, like yeah, everything's connected. Yeah, it's good stuff. I think is the bottom line. And as I said in the beginning of our conversation, I have always really appreciated this you know, this kind of perspective that you offer of like not making a rule of things and looking at things from uh, a variety of perspectives. And I think it's, it's important that we're doing that. You know, this audience, the people who are listening are primarily Pilates teachers, but also yoga teachers and massage therapists and other things. Um, I think it's good to, to get us to think outside of the box and, and, begin to maybe see that we're doing something way bigger than just training bodies. Right. We're we're doing something way more than just trying to achieve perfect movement patterns and, um, you know, greater flexibility. And like, what an honor is it, you know, like to be able to be that person for somebody is like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I had no doubt that it would be, and we have covered <laughs> uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything else you want yeah. to add before we uh, before we wrap up? Um, I don't think so. I mean, it's a pleasure to talk, and, and it's like whenever I do podcasts or speak, I you know, it's I'm just grateful for everybody listening and interested, and I love talking shop, if you will, and you know, I, I, like I. I said earlier, I don't think I know everything and everything I do is the right way. And I'm just constantly, my friend Koichi calls it a, a truth seeker, like X-Files. Uh-huh. So, um, uh-huh. you know, I don't, I don't know if the truth is out there, but, um, I definitely think it's really fun to play around and, and, and get to experience different sort of science projects within each person's body. And I'm the first science project I do for every new thing. So mm-hmm. it's just, it's fun. And it's, it's to connect with people who, who have the same views. Yeah. Yeah. In that yeah. sense. Yeah. Yes. Right. 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 Um, so just the last few things, uh, about Anna. Anna is also the founder of movement rev, which is her, um, her business in Arizona. Check her out at movementrev.com. Um, and then Anna uh, is going to be presenting at the PMA conference um, in just a few weeks. So if you're headed that way, um, you should check it out and connect with her on Facebook. Uh, she has a Facebook page for Movement Rev. And uh-huh. I think that's it. I love you, Darlene, and I'm looking forward love to you seeing too. you. And thank you again for um, just the, the crazy, awesome, always, uh, nerding out. It's it right. uh, never, <laughs> never disappointing. Well, thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye. Sounds good. Bye-bye. You're a mystery to me, and I'm not asking for the key, but I hope that you let me in the